Good afternoon, saints of Pilgrim Hill. I have to train myself to say good afternoon. I almost said good morning even as I wrote down good afternoon. But I have the privilege today of bringing to you and encouraging and exhorting you from the Word of God. And so today, instead of continuing through our normal uh, programming that we've been on in Genesis, we're going to pivot a little bit and I'm going to bring you a sermon from uh, the book of 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. Now, many of you may know this and many of you may not, but uh, as Pastor Brooks said, I was a, um, a church planter before. I did a lot of preaching before, and uh, um, the last sermon series that we were in before we decided to close down the church was actually in 1 Peter. So when Pastor Brooks asked me to preach this week, um, 1 Peter was fresh on my mind. It was fresh on my heart. But not only that, but I feel that 1 Peter is uniquely relevant to us uh, in a rapidly decaying culture that is increasingly hostile to the truth of Christ. Thus, I would say it is increasingly relevant to us. Um, The Apostle Peter originally wrote this letter to Christians who at the time were were a very strange minority in a pagan Roman empire. Now, for the most part, they weren't being tortured and killed for their faith, yet, um, rather, at this point in history, the Christians were being mocked and reviled, and they were losing social status and opportunities. Does that sound familiar? Now, while our society is not entirely pagan, we are certainly trending in that direction. Uh, For example, many of you, uh, um, many of you in your jobs or wherever you work, If you were to, say, bring up your views on sexuality or gender or any such hot topic, many of you may run the risk of losing your job or definitely losing favor with coworkers or boss. Um, I read a story just the other day about a young Christian kid in high school who wore a shirt, very controversial shirt, that said, uh, men are not women, and he was not allowed to walk with his graduating class um, for, for that reason. Um, It seems increasingly likely that as Christians, in the coming years, we are going to need to prepare ourselves to suffer for righteousness' sake. Uh, Maybe already, that's already begun in some of your lives, but uh, it seems that that is the trajectory that we're on. Um, This is, in fact, the main theme, or one of the main themes of the book of 1 Peter, and it is the subject of our text this afternoon. So today, we're going to prepare ourselves by studying 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. You can turn there with me. Um, I'm going to pray for us before we jump into the text and then we'll get into it. Father, you are good and holy and righteous. And all that you do is good. Thank you so much for the opportunity to encourage and exhort the saints of Pilgrim Hill. I pray that you would speak to us, that we would be attentive to your word, and that, you would, that we would leave transformed um, through the power of your spirit and the proclamation of your word. And I pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil, reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. 
Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. The word of the Lord. Now, in this life, there are certain events, certain happenstances that beg questions. I like that turn of phrase, uh, something that begs the question. Our world is so beautifully complex, and it's wonderful, it's beautiful, it begs the question, who made it? Who designed this world? Just the beauty of the world begs the question of a creator. Now, there is much in this world that begs questions, and the stranger and more intriguing something is, typically the more vigorously we will beg the question. Um, Now, some of you will remember, most of you probably won't, but some of you may, uh, there was a social media post in 2015 that begged a lot of questions. It was a photograph that went viral and sparked a flurry of debate all over social media And some of you may uh, remember it. It was, uh, I'm of course referring to the notorious hashtag the dress controversy. Some of you are shaking your heads. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Um, Now, for those of you who were not tuned in to this particular internet sensation, eight years ago, someone posted an overexposed photograph of a dress uh, to a website website called Tumblr. And it went all over Facebook, Instagram, all the rest. Now, I'm actually just going to show you Why? Because when I looked at that picture, we I saw that's what I saw. White people. But all these people on the internet were saying they looked at that same exact picture. I could not. I thought I would just be a just person. And uh, so, as it turns out, not a picture, not a story. Apparently, uh, about half the population sees that photo. That's a strange thing. Now, it is, in fact, for those of you who saw black and blue, you're right, okay? Um, It was, in fact, a black and blue dress. Um, I even checked. I remember my wife and I debated this because we both see. I thought she was messing with me, too. Like, you're in on this as well? Um, She was saying, no, it's black and blue, obviously. We're going back and forth about it. Um, Apparently, my wife sees it the right way, and I see it the wrong way, a phenomenon I am quite used to at this point. Um, (laughs) Um... But we're looking at the same photo and seeing totally different things, totally different colors, which, of course, begs the question, why? Why do we see the same picture differently? What else are we seeing differently? Is color even real? Is this a glitch in the matrix? What does this mean? I mean, it begs a lot of questions, this one photograph. Apparently, ever since that social media post in 2015, there have been teams of scientists researching this. Um, Hundreds of academic papers written. People have literally spent eight years dedicated to hashtag the dress. I know, it's pretty wild. Um, So why do I share this story with you this afternoon? Well, because King Jesus is calling his people, us, to be way stranger than that photograph of a dress. 
Our lives ought to be far more intriguing, far more provocative, far more compelling than a social media post from 2015. And when an unbelieving world looks at us, when they see the way that we face trials, the way that we face persecutions and sufferings, they ought to have a lot of questions. We ought to live lives that beg questions. Where do you get that kind of peace and joy in the midst of your trials? Why are you so kind to people that revile you? So in our passage today, the Apostle Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, lays out an instruction manual on how we can live lives that beg questions. So Peter does this by instructing us concerning three things. For you note-takers out there, uh, we're going to be covering the character of God's people, the response of God's people, and the motivation of God's people. So first off, we're going to start with the character of God's people, the character of a life that begs questions. So let's look at verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Here in verse 8, Peter lays out five traits that are meant to characterize the church. And by characterize the church, I mean meant to characterize each and every one of us. Um, so let's take time. Let's take these one at a time. Unity of mind. Now, that is a tall order. Unity of mind. Peter is commanding all the Christians and all of the churches that he's writing to to have unity of mind. How practical does that sound? Um, how could this be achieved in a world of hundreds of thousands of different theological opinions, church splits and ministry philosophy disagreements? How could we possibly achieve unity of mind? The only way this can be achieved, actually be achieved, and it's meant to, these commands are meant to be obeyed. Um, the only way this can be achieved is through an unwavering commitment to submit all things to the Word of God. Everything. You see, if we believe that this book truly is the inerrant, infallible, authoritative, all-sufficient, inspired Word of God, if we really believe that, then every time that we have a disagreement, what do we do? We just run it up the chain of command, right? What does God's Word say on the matter? Husbands and wives, are you bickering with one another? You can't, in the same cycle of fights, search the Scriptures and submit to them. I promise, every disagreement that you have ultimately can be solved by humble submission to what God's Word says. He resolves everything. He brings unity of mind. When there is discord and disunity in the church among Christians, the first gut-level response ought to be repent and do a Bible study. That's where we go. We go to God's Word. So that's the first one. Um, that's the first trait that ought to characterize God's people. The second one that he mentions here is sympathy. Sympathy. And uh, the Greek word is uh, sympathesis. And it is a, the literal translation of this word would be to feel together. All right? We're called to feel together. It can also be translated as compassion. So first, Peter uh, says that we're to have unity of mind. Now he's saying we need to have unity of heart. Um, and the Apostle Paul puts it this way in Galatians 6, 2. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. As the church, we are called to feel with people. We are called to weep with those who weep and to rejoice with those who rejoice. And so there's a question we need to continually be asking ourselves as God's people. Am I truly bearing burdens with my brothers and sisters? 
Am I devoted to praying for and encouraging those in our body that are going through difficult times? Am I feeling it with them? We're called to feel together. We're called to have true sympathy and compassion for those brothers and sisters, for our our brothers and sisters in Christ. So next we're called to uh, brotherly love. The word that Peter uses here is actually a kinship term. And uh, Peter is saying that we are meant to love each other like family. Love each other like family. Interestingly, uh, some of you may know this, but one of the accusations that was being leveled against the early Christians um, in the Roman Empire was that they practiced incest. They were being accused of marrying their siblings. That's, and that's why they were getting thrown in prison or bringing accusations. That was the accusation. Now, why would they get that accusation? Well, they didn't just call each other brother and sister. They really lived out such a life, such a life that was so involved with each other and so committed to one another that they lived as a family. Now, you want to talk about a life that begs questions. Truly living like family in today's hyper-individualistic culture will turn heads. It really will. As I mentioned earlier, uh, I used to live in Los Angeles. And I remember when I first moved to Los Angeles... Uh, We were a part of a church that was really committed to living out this identity that we have as family, really committed to that. And uh, one of the church members had an improv performance, um, and about 20 people from our church showed up to this tiny little theater, and uh, we made up probably half the audience um, for this little improv graduation performance. Um, And uh, that friend told us after the show that all his fellow performers, they're their jaw was dropped when they saw how many people showed up. They weren't expecting anything like that. Uh, And they were asking him, who are all these people? How do you have so many friends? How do you have so many people in the city to genuinely care about you? And he told them, that's my church family. That's my church family. It spoke to them and opened up opportunities for them to actually talk about God. So church, we can be an incredible witness to the world by simply loving and supporting each other as the family of God. We're called to unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love. Next, we are called to a tender heart. <laughs> the Greek word is really fun for this. Eusoplanchnos. Um, and you can correct my, uh, uh, my, the way I said that. Um, and it would literally be translated as good bowels. That's what it means. Eusoplanchnos. Uh, it's a fun one. So we're called to have good bowels for one another. Um, Now, I know that sounds funny, but in the ancient world, the place that you felt emotions wasn't here, it was here. And I mean, we still talk like that, right? I have a gut feeling. You feel it in your gut. Or where do you, whenever you hold your crush's hand for the first time, where are the butterflies? Your stomach, right? We still talk like that. Um, So what's Peter getting at here? He's saying that as brothers and sisters, we're called to feel deeply with and for one another, right? So what does this actually look like in practice? So there's lots of ways. Um, we'll pull out one application. Here's what it can look like in practice. Before you seek to help somebody with their problem, seek to feel with them first. All right? Bear the burden with them. It's good to point people to the gospel. It's good to point people to the truth of God's word, but it's not good when it's done coldly and callously. Right? We start with feeling with and for our brothers and sisters. No one wants to hear your good advice unless they know you have good bowels first. All right? So we're to have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart. And lastly, we are called to have a humble mind. Now, this last one would have been particularly 
countercultural in the Roman Empire. You see, in the Greco-Roman world, humility was not a positive virtue. The fact that we think that, that's evidence of Christendom. Uh, humility was not a positive virtue. Humility meant weakness. It meant that you were too weak to defend your honor. Humble-minded is what you were when you were conquered. And yet Peter is saying here, forget about your honor. Forget about your honor. Live for the honor of King Jesus and for others. Don't seek honor for yourself. We are to be a people that are marked by humility. One of my favorite definitions of humility, uh, which is often attributed to Mr. C.S. Lewis. Uh, a lot of you guys have heard it before. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking of yourself less. I think that is so helpful. Because oftentimes we can fall into the trap of believing that we're humble because we think we're really not that important or that I don't really have anything to offer or that what I say doesn't really matter. But that's not humility. That's insecurity. And what happens then is you end up depriving your family, your friends, and your church community of all the gifts that God has given to you, right? That's not about thinking less of yourself. When we do that, we're still just thinking about ourselves. When you're down on yourself, you're still thinking about yourself, right? So someone who is truly humble just doesn't think about themselves. As Pastor Brooks says often, the art of self-forgetfulness. Do, do any of you know somebody like that, right? Somebody who is just attractively, wonderfully humble. I mean, besides me, obviously. But, <laughs> dad joke, I couldn't help that one. Um, but, do you, but when you know someone like that, it's just, they're just a delight to be around, truly. And often it is the case that it's kind of hard to put your finger on just why it's so delightful to be around that person. But it's because they're always considering others before themselves. And it just, it just glows. So to live a life like that, a true humility, that is to live a life that begs questions. Why are they so wonderful to be around? Hopefully people say that of us and our workplaces, where we go. As we shine the light of Christ, as we characterize these different traits. So God's people, were, as God's people, we're called to have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, tender heart, and a humble mind. Now before we move on, um, I, I want you to think about those traits. Which of those comes naturally to you? And then which ones do you kind of struggle with? Um, it's likely that it's going to be a mix there. But as we think about that, I want you to think about that because we're called to all of them and the Holy Spirit transforms. So whenever you think about the ones that you struggle with, ask the Holy Spirit to transform you more into the image of Christ and to help you to grow in that area. Um, the call to follow Christ is the call, um, the call to make disciples and see his kingdom come and his will be done here in Tennessee as it is in heaven is a call to a, a transformed character. And he gives the power for that to happen. So let's go on to part number two, the response of God's people. We've got the character of God's people, now the response of God's people. This is where things get more challenging, I think. Verse 8, Peter is calling us to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. That can be very challenging. Um, but we get into more difficult territory. Here in verse 9, Peter is calling us to bless those who persecute us. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For, this, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. So here in verse 8, Peter returns to one of his central themes and reasons for writing this letter, how to suffer well. Specifically, he's addressing suffering for righteousness' sake. 
Persecution against Christians was beginning in earnest around the Roman Empire. Thus, the question began to arise in the hearts of many. How are we to respond to this mean-spirited mocking and reviling and slandering that we are receiving from the hands of our neighbors? How do we respond to that? Now, before we get to how Peter instructs us to respond, we've got to ask ourselves a very important question. And that is, is anyone reviling me because of my faith in Jesus? Does my faith rock any boats? If we are truly living out our faith in Jesus, we will have both. We will have those who are attracted to us because of the beauty of Christ in us, and we will have those who are totally repelled by us. It's going to be both. We are told as much over and over again throughout the pages of Scripture. Jesus tells us to let our good works shine before men so that they may see our good works and give glory to our Father in heaven. Some people are going to see your lives. They're going to give glory to God and be attracted to Christ. But Jesus also tells us in John 3.20 that everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. Jesus is saying that there will be many who hate the light of Christ in us because it exposes their own wickedness. So our Christian lives will attract and repel. And just a word of warning to go with this admonition, if you're all attractive or all repellent, you're probably doing it wrong. All right? If you repel everyone you meet in the name of Jesus, you may think that you're standing up for truth, but you're probably just being a jerk. Okay? But in my estimation, so that's the ditch on one side, but then there's a ditch on the other side of the road that in my estimation seems to be much more a temptation in our current evangelical landscape. Um, I think much of the church, and it's what I call, has a case of a, a cool table-itis, all right? Cool table-itis. It's where you want a seat at the cool table, so you say what you need to say or leave out or don't say what you need to leave out so that you can gain acceptance and approval from the culture. Now, this temptation is really, it's so insidious because it's subtle. It's most often a sin of omission. It's something that you didn't say when you know you should have, right? You didn't stand up for what's right because you feared disapproval. You feared reprimand. You feared what opportunities that you would lose. Now, there's a balance. We need wisdom to walk this tightrope. It's not just one or the other, but the Holy Spirit convicts us for a reason, and we need to listen to him, um, and not fall into either side of that ditch. Jesus tells us in Luke 6.26, Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did the false prophets. And Jesus is telling us here that if no one is repelled by you living out your faith, you've got a lot in common with false prophets. Right? Does everyone love you and speak well of you? You've almost certainly compromised the truth. Does that, on the other hand, does everyone think you're a jerk? You've almost certainly compromised showing and speaking grace and mercy and love. So as Christians, we will both attract and repel people by living out our faith. And those who are repelled will mock and revile. In today's culture, they may try to get you canceled or fired from your job, or maybe they're just mean to you and it hurts, okay? So how are we to respond to this persecution? We bless them. We're called to bless them. And this is radical. This is radical stuff. When someone mocks you, reviles you for your faith, and you bless that person, that, that turns heads. 
That is a life that begs question. And if we can live this out, if we can truly be a people that seeks to love and bless those who hate and persecute us, many people will be attracted to the light of Christ. So it's actually this very thing that sets Christianity apart from every other belief system, among other things. But the fact that we love our enemies, that is a unique in the religions of the world. We love our enemies. We don't think we're better. In fact, we know we're not better. We know that but not for the grace of God, there go I. So we respond to persecution by loving and blessing our enemies. So we've talked about the character of God's people and and the uh, response of God's people. Lastly, we'll finish up with the motivation of God's people. So here in verse nine, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. So what is the motivation for living in this radical way? Peter tells us here that you may obtain a blessing. And what is this blessing that we are to obtain? Peter goes on to quote what seems to be one of his favorite Psalms, Psalm 34. He's already quoted it three times throughout his letter. This is the motivation for our obedience. And then he just lays it out. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, if we're not careful, we may be tempted to think that Peter is saying that if we behave righteously... God will bless us with a healthy, wealthy life. And we may be tempted to think uh, that the blessing that we are working to obtain is a comfortable life free from suffering. But we know that's not what Peter is saying. We know that's not what Peter is promising. Why? Because Peter knows already what's in store for him. Jesus tells Peter in John 21 that he is going to be carried off where he doesn't want to go. And he will ultimately die because of his faith in Jesus. You see, Peter knew that he wasn't headed for a life of comfort and health and wealth. He knew he was headed for some serious suffering in the not-too-distant future. In fact, virtually all the apostles were burned alive, beheaded, crucified, exiled, all for their faith in Christ. So what is the blessing that Peter is talking about then? The one that he turns to, 34 to uh, Psalm 34 to describe. And he's describing the blessing we obtain in Christ, but he's also describing the curse that one obtains in rejecting Christ. So let's skip down to verse 12 so we can see kind of in uh, close-up fashion what he's getting at is the real blessing that we obtain um, in this passage. So verse 12 says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So the blessing we acquire for obedience is the face of God. As our character is transformed by the Holy Spirit through obedience to God's word, as we respond to persecution with love and blessing, we have the face of God. What does that mean? It means his eyes are upon us. His ears are on us. We have his attention. We have the attention of the creator of heaven and earth. We have access to his personal presence. That is blessing. Listen, church, who who here wants to love life and see good days? We all do, right? Peter's saying you want to love life and see good days? The summary of this psalm is love people and enjoy the face of God. 
Do not be tempted to lie and slander as others do about you. Seek peace and pursue it. Why? Because we're too busy enjoying the life-giving presence of our Savior. If your greatest pleasure, your greatest joy in life is found in the face of God, then you are untouchable. Nothing can take your joy. Nothing can shake you because no one can take the presence of God from you. As followers of Jesus, we are motivated by the fact that we have the love and attention of our Heavenly Father. And some of you guys need to hear that this morning or this afternoon, that He sees you, actually, right now, throughout your days, He sees you. Even if you can't understand what's going on, why am I going through this difficult situation in life? He's, he sees you, He hears you, His ears are open to you. You have His attention. You have His care. And He promises that He's working all things for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. And we'll finish up with this here. How do we know? How do we know that's true? How do we know we have the face of God? Well, is it because we were righteous enough to get his attention? Absolutely not. We know we have the face of God. Romans 5.8 tells us, but God shows his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We weren't righteous enough to earn God's favor. In fact, we completely deserve to have his face set against us. We deserve wrath for our rebellion. In our natural state, we are actually the opposite of everything this passage is calling us to. Unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind, loving and blessing our enemies. Who is Peter really describing here? He's describing his Savior. He's describing Jesus, his great love. Only in Christ is true unity found. Jesus is the true sympathetic one. He had such incredible compassion that he left the riches of heaven and became poor for us. That's sympathy in action. He loved us so completely and so intimately that he has given us the power of the Spirit to actually live and reside in us closer than a brother. He feels for us deeply. Remember Jesus weeping at the tomb of Lazarus, feeling with his creation. We cannot fathom the humility of our Savior. The King of Kings who came and lived as a carpenter in obscurity for 30 years, the second person of the Godhead, humbled himself and became a man. Why? So that he could love his enemies and bless those who persecute him. Jesus Christ was the only truly righteous man to ever live, and yet he was mocked and reviled and hated tortured and killed so that we could be blessed, so that you could be blessed. On the cross, the Father turned his face away so that we could be forgiven and have this face, have the face of God and his attention. This is our ultimate motivation. We have been loved and blessed in Christ so completely that we cannot help but overflow with love and blessing others. The gospel transforms our character as God's people. It transforms the way that we respond to persecution. And ultimately, it transforms our motives for everything that we do. And if we live in this way, our neighbors will have questions. Many will be repelled, but many will be attracted. So may we truly live a life that begs questions. Let me pray for us.